Hi, everyone. Welcome to the San Diego News Fix, Name Drop Edition. Once a week, we're featuring a fascinating San Diegan, and this week, my guest is Austin Choi Fitzpatrick. Austin is a professor at the University of San Diego who studies politics, culture, technology, and social movements. His work is impressively varied. His last two books were about drones and another about human trafficking. Austin is really energetic and curious and has a unique outlook on life. In this interview, we talk about sociology, parenting, a few unpopular opinions, and more. Here's our conversation. Well, Austin, great to have you on Name Drop San Diego. How are you doing today? I'm alive and well. I'm so glad to be speaking with you today. I've been so grateful over the years for the support of the Union Tribune and so happy to be on a podcast that's doing great work. How are you doing today? Awesome. Thanks so much. Good. A little hot, you know, it's like a hot day and I don't have air conditioning like many people in San Diego. And so like I'm, you know, looking forward to cooler weather later on, (laughs) but otherwise good. The only time anyone in San Diego says, I'm looking forward to cooler weather. If only it would cool I, off. You know? I know. And it's so weak to be so hot when it's like, what, like maybe 80. I like, I'm so yes. thin skinned already. Um, well, you have such an interesting career. And I was hoping that we could start by talking um, about that. You know, you you work on social innovation, social change, human rights, and it's, it's kind of all over the place. So how do you describe your own work? Uh, kind of all over the place. That's a great, that's a great description. Um, I ask myself this on a regular basis. I ask myself, am I, I'm a professor. I get you know, sort of paid to be a professor. And then I ask myself, well, maybe I really want to be an artist, or maybe I really want to be a writer, or maybe I, and so I, I, I think that's an excellent setup because I have, I've, I've for years looked for the one word that might describe it all. And I thought, well, maybe it's tinker, or maybe it's, you know, looking for these things. But I'm really, uh, you know, I'm a professor at the Kroc School at the University of San Diego, where I teach classes on social change, and on social movements, on human rights, and those interests. Uh, I, I sort of, I t- I get, I'm fortunate to teach on things that really matter to me. I've spent, I sort of was homeschooled. Uh, I never went to school formally. I was homeschooled K through 12, and it led to a kind of way of thinking and looking at the world that wasn't neatly organized into discrete categories. And I never had a desk or a bell or a teacher even (laughs) really. Sorry, mom. And so it it led to the sense that the world was this amazing and beautiful place full of mystery, wonder, and, and awe, and that we should go out into it and see what there is of it learn about it and where there's beauty invest in it where there's things that need where there are things that need changing see what we can do to better understand and then be part of solutions and so that's a sort of really philosophical and abstract and you know like you know way back in the day sort of way of saying that i i got started with an interest in what the world what the world is and how it can be can be made better what's beautiful can be amplified and, and what's wrong can be made better and i think that's shaped you know sort of uh the ensuing years of my career. It's things I did in college, things I did in graduate school. I, I you know, went on then to do research as a professor and the things I, I do now. And I guess what I'm hoping to do next, tinker, tinker, maybe I'll stop there. I think I'm a tinkerer. <laughs> no, I love it. I love your description of being homeschooled and sort of, uh, you know, the gift that that's given you, but just like being untethered to any particular, um, you know, line of line of thinking or any particular work. That's awesome. I didn't used to think that. I used to be upset that I felt like I didn't have industry standard experiences. And, you know, when I was younger, I didn't know the jokes that everybody told, not inside jokes, but just jokes, you know? Mm-hmm. And I thought I, and I felt left out and out and sort of uh, a, a bit off the beaten path, which was true. And it, 
but in time, I, I've, I've grown to see it in the way I've just described it, which is like an invitation to see the world almost in a fresh, in a, in a fresh way. And so I, I appreciate you saying that, but it's taken me years to sort of think through that and realize that it was a, it was, it was the asset I just described it as, as opposed to me feeling sort of left out, you know, as, as a kid, et cetera. Yeah, I get it. I grew up largely like not watching very much TV. And so like I missed a lot of like pop culture references and stuff too. Yeah. So I get it. I get it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and I, I, I don't ever pick me for Trivial Pursuit. I mean, that's so, you know, this is like my my partner, my wife knows like don't ever, ever get on my team. Uh, yeah, same, same. Take us for beers, but not beer trivia. Gotcha. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. Um, well, do you homeschool your own kids? No, no. I, you know, I, I don't. And they they go to a public school because they've been public institutions. Um, but also I feel that there is a sort of, um, I mean, a su- support for public schools is important to me, but also I feel that kind of mainstream exposure to mainstream society is important. And the thing I, I now value, and it's, it's funny that we're talking about this right now, but the thing I now value so much about my my upbringing was this other way of seeing the world. And so my question has always been, how can I give my kids an sort of industry standard or best in class you know, education, which is what I feel I missed in some, in some regards with the thing that I valued about my own childhood, which is this different way of seeing the world. And so I've, I've ended up thinking maybe it's the school's job to sort of formally educate my children in the sort of uh, whys and wherewithals of sort of industry standard knowledge, let's say, and then they can even know jokes that other people know and know something about popular culture. And then it's my job or my, you know, I and my partner's job in the home to sort of train ourselves or practice in the home a way of seeing the world that allows us to, um, to bring our best selves, our whole selves, our full selves into that process. Yeah. What are some of the things you do or the ways you go about it? You know, at the very most basic level, this is sort of my, my kids are now teenagers, but um, when they were little, that sort of easiest some easiest examples are we would do things like play a why game like we'd ask why 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 I'd encourage them to ask why like more than twice more than three times more than five times you get certain sort of like strange weird and existential sorts of places if you ask (laughs) why you know too many times but it was a nice exercise in the sort of act of of inquiry practical inquiry another thing we did is uh in the in the home the parents were never right just because there's no just becausing uh to our children if our children had questions about why something was or it needed a rule justified or needed a particular practice or statement sort of explained we would always take the time to explain it I just said rule and I, but that sort of triggers a memory I, we've gone around our dinner table and talked about rules what rules does our family have and I don't think we ever had rules so there are no there were sort of norms and there were values and commitments and practices and you know the sort of thing that every like culture big and small has we never really had rules you know this is the thing you do we had ways of being and we would say well that's kind of out of alignment with you know is that what you want to be doing is this who you want to be and we have conversations like that and then the last thing i'll say is that i didn't help my kids do things unless they tried three times so my kids would say you know can you help me get something from the top shelf and i'd say well, have you tried three times and they'd say well i think i need a spotter and so then i would come and spot them while they worked on getting something from a high shelf and it turned out i i, I realized that parents are often 
like parental concern and parental knowledge is often often a lagging indicator of like a child's capacity and it turns out that you know my, you know a kid walks and we're like oh my god they can walk now and we get we were surprised and, and being a parent is largely an undertaking and being undertaking and being surprised i found so then the question is how can you get ahead of the surprise by inviting the child into things that neither you nor they know they can do and so then you just don't do things for them unless they actually need it and it turns out they need us far less than we usually think they do I love your parenting philosophy. I just think that's so, it's like, seems very fully formed, but you know, it's also very um, nebulous and that it can go in a lot of different directions. Um, I don't know. I, I just, I'm not sure that everybody has one of those. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. It's, it, we, we started with first principles. We asked ourselves what sort of humans do we want to invest the world in for the world, right? How you had to frame that sentence, but what kind of humans and adults do we want, not what kind of kids do we want? And it turns out that if you think that way, oftentimes almost all of us want, want to sort of be raising humans or sort of helping develop and send out into the world fully fledged humans, adults that think for themselves, act for themselves, have their own opinions or their own ideas, are, are sort of anchored in an identity that they've developed and and curated and sort of put together for themselves rather than being downstream of being told what to do and just taking things as accepted. And we want those things for our, for our children, but then I think we sometimes don't walk, sort of take the steps backwards and, and think from process perspective of what that means about parenting. And so as parents, we often take shortcuts and say, well, because I told you so, but don't ever take anybody's word for it just because they tell <laughs> you, which is two contradictory sort of messages and kids get confused, understandably. And so I think we, we didn't really have a, a philosophy, um, like we didn't set out to do, you know, the things I'm describing to you are just things we sort of stumbled along on the way, but they came from this commitment that we wanted to raise children that looked a certain way, independent, um, sort of motivated, ambitious, creative, intelligent, curious. Did I say curious twice? I hope I did because yeah, curious. <laughs> Extra curious. Well, uh, it sounds like it's going well. It sounds like you're, you're raising good humans. Yeah, so far so good. Call me in a year. Let's talk in a year and we'll see. Knock on <laughs> we'll board. do our annual check-in. That yeah, sounds good. That's, that's right. that's right. um, okay. Well, you know, thanks for all that information. That was really interesting. Let's talk more about your work. So um, your two most recent books, I haven't read. I am interested in reading them, but The Good Drone, How Social Movements Democratize Surveillance and What Slaveholders Think, How Contemporary Perpetrators, is that right? Rationalize what they do. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um you know, those, those like seem so different to me. And I know that you like look at them through the social lens, but what are they about? And what did you conclude? Yeah, you're the one that said eclectic. I'm so glad you started this, this conversation or conversation with the word eclectic because, you know, both of them um, sort of, they tackled very different, different questions. And I'll, maybe I'll in a minute work my way around to what holds them together. Um, but the slaveholders book came out of a, a conviction that the sort of, anti-slavery movement, I, I, for 20 years or so, been alongside of um, sometimes, and now I'm an academic in sort of the academic space, and so work at academic journals and write papers and that sort of thing. But before that, I was the communications director for an NGO in DC, and before that, I did grassroots organizing and mobilizing here in San Diego. And across the sort of anti-trafficking uh, sort of movements sets of convictions and commitments is this persistent desire to see people who have been exploited come out of the situation they're in and come into freedom. 
And I've always thought there's something a little, a couple of things missing from that story. And one of them is that it's not so simple as going from slavery to freedom. It's actually a lot more complicated than that. And the second thing is that this process often of, of exploitation and freedom often involves more actors than just, let's say, the person who needs help and the organization who's, gonna, who's, a, who's got the sort of capacity to come in and help them. But it also involves perpetrators. And so the What Slaveholders Think book was, was uh, the first time somebody went and spoke with perpetrators of slavery and trafficking and asked them what it felt like to be targeted by social movements, what it felt like to have their workers rebel against them or refuse to work for them, what it felt like to be losing control over people that they had always had power and authority and control over. And that was fascinating to me because I think it tells this other side of the story for, you know, this is a, a cause celeb over the last 20 years or so, anti-trafficking and ending, ending the trafficking of humans. And I thought this is an interesting and important other side of the story. And in, in a part because some of the perpetrators I spoke with were actually so uh, vulnerable themselves that they were receiving aid from international aid groups. And so it's one thing to say like, well, let's go get the bad guy. And if you ask the, the sort of powerless exploited person, who's the bad guy? And then you see you know, who's doing the exploiting. It's usually guys, not always usually guys. And it's a, then you see somebody who's clearly more powerful than the, the person who's being exploited. But if you zoom out a little bit, it's easy to see that, that in some cases, not all, but in some cases, that person doing the perpetration is themselves on their last leg or is themselves like run out of lines of credit and has had to turn to exploiting another person in order to cover the bills in their small business. And that doesn't justify it, but it asks the international aid community, like, so how, what are we doing about this problem as a system? Not just how are we addressing this one, you know, this person at the, uh, at the level of a sort of exploited person, but what are we doing to make the system sort of solve things at the systems level overall? So that was a slaveholders, slaveholders book. It like, do you have a record scratch like sort of sound? Like maybe like added <laughs> for a scratch yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, you look for a record scratch sound, we drop it in here. And then and then while I was writing that book, um, I ran a lab with my students and we said, let's do something fun. Let's do a human rights lab. We'll buy some technology and see what can be done with it. And we bought a drone. So my students said, let's buy a drone. So we bought a drone. And in the process of using the drone, we developed, we did some fun things with it. And I thought I'll write a short paper about what it's like to use drones to support social movements. I was living in Budapest, Hungary at the time. There were large scale protests and we used the drone to document some of the, the crowd turnout at these large protests. And I went to write a short essay about it. And it turns out there hadn't been a lot of thinking about how, not, not what are drones and what are they doing? And, oh my Lord, we should regulate them. Or what if the police have them or, you know, this sort of thing. But instead just like, what are they doing? How should we be thinking about them from a, so, like from the public's perspective, you know? And is there a role for social movements? I'm a social movement scholar. Is there a role for social movements to have drones in this technology? So I went out, I set out to write this little paper and it became a big book um, <laughs> and not just about drones, but about satellites, about strapping cameras to kites. We, I got a big balloon and we strapped GoPros to a balloon and we floated it over um, uh, in Hungary. We floated it over the campus there and you know, now I'm at USD and we floated over USD's campus. And it's sort of, it's a larger conversation about who has eyes in the sky, right? Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we're, we're increasingly surveilled. There's, you know, we, we have this conversation about privacy. It's an important conversation. But oftentimes we're talking about Amazon and Amazon drones, or we're talking about the, you know, the, the Department of Defense and the Air Force. And we're talking about sort of big actors. And in that book, I just wanted to 
democratize the conversation and have a conversation about democratizing surveillance and what happens if people, everyday people like you and I have drones and we use them for political means like we were documenting protests. Should we have been doing that? Right? It's a good question. And I raise it in the book and I don't answer it. I say, oh, I don't know, dear readers, what do you think? But it came out of this kind of almost happenstancey sort of, sort of uh, experience in Budapest with my students in a lab and some protests. And that was, it's, it's been fun. That's so cool. I have so many questions. Well, going back to um, what slaveholders think, that's so interesting that you talk to perpetrators. It kind of sounds controversial to me too, though. You know, it's like in these like outing move, social movements that we have, they're like, bad guys don't get a voice. So like, how has it been received? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I think that there has been, it, I'll answer for both books because saying that drones are something that civil society should use as opposed to we should always oppose has also been controversial. So both of these books have, you know, have had, have had, uh, I think raise areas, raise areas. I don't want to say raise concerns. That's not quite the right thing, but like are areas where there's like re uh, reasonable people can debate <laughs> reasonably about this. So What's like, are bad guys people too? And we, we think yes, but do we want public policies that, that reflect that? And is bad guys, oh, I'm just, we're being, we're just chit-chatting here, but is bad guys the right kind of way to think about this? Or is there, are there gradations? And, uh, and in a lot of ways, and you know, I'm at the Kroc School of Peace Studies, and we have these theories of restorative justice and these ideas that there should be paths and avenues and gates of return, to quote Leonard Cohen, back to what? Back to society or back to good standing in society or back to leadership or back to opportunities to perpetrate and exploit. Oh, okay, I'm trailing off there because, <laughs> you know, maybe you agreed with the first thing I said, but probably none of us would agree with the last thing I said. But that conversation, or even that, that sort of question, set of questions suggests we should be having larger conversations about perpetrators. And so, and so just to your point, yeah, then folks ask like, well, wait a minute, are you saying that, right? And in both of those books, I've done my best to say, I'm, I'm trying to identify an area where there's a gap. And I'm trying to ask questions about what we should do. And that sort of like gap thing, well, that's, you know, we started this conversation by talking about my interest in fissures and gaps because maybe how the way my brain works because of the way I was educated or something else, I don't know. But that conversation that it opens is I've always thought an opportunity for, for democratic discourse, for reasonable people who disagree to have conversations across big differences. And, and I think we should be having a larger conversation just to get back to your question about what about perpetrators? We're mid stride in a very important sort of um, national awakening about gender and gender inequality through sort of the Me Too, the Me Too movement. When we're, we're hopefully just the very beginning of a larger conversation about, about reconciliation and reparations around uh, around sort of racial racial issues with black lives matter and in both of those we've got really big conversations we could be having about you know what we do about bad guys and uh and i don't think i've got answers and and, and maybe i should pretend that i do and write public policy and then tell people what to do but i think that the conversation this opens up is what i'm far more far more interested in yeah, I mean, this is fascinating. It gives me the impression you have really fun debates in your classes. I have fun debates in the classes, fun debates on Marco Polo with my friends, fun, uh -huh. fun debates with anybody who talks about Marco Polo, that's amazing. 
But I think that the just real quickly to your to this point about debates, I think I you said debates and I said conversations. Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, there's the sort of fierce con fierce debates and fierce conversations. I'm, I'm getting my 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 lines mixed up, but there's these different ways of talking about this, but I, I feel like having conversations is increasingly important, and I hope that we have conversations more frequently than we have debates, and we're not even having debates right now. Right now, like the national level, we're just all yelling, and nobody's listening. Mm -hmm. That's a different sort of problem, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you. You're right. Conversations, not debates. Okay, well, I have a lightning round for you, and uh, the first one, we, we might have already covered it, but like, do you have an unpopular opinion, or, you know, just like something that most people think and agree with, or like that you're just not about oh i should i should have one of the some an answer off the top of my head my my default would be that i talk to perpetrators but we just talked all about that <laughs> right um I, uh, you know i here okay this is this is what is just off the top of my head i wonder if we're going to regret buying so many electric vehicles because of what it does uh to the environment when it comes to batteries so i think we should not have combustible engine cars i think that's a problem and i think we're going to switch to green uh green energy and we're going to have a new sort of dilemma which is what to do with all those batteries um i know that's not a popular though that's not controversial that's more like a curmudgeonly person saying what are we going to do with those batteries yeah but it's a i good think question. it's something controversial lightning round i'll come back at the end okay 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 you have till the end to to think about one um let's see what is your perfect san diego day uh perfect san diego day um we go to the tide pools in la jolla the the, the tide pools in la jolla are my absolute favorite uh, they've been my favorite before i even saw them because they're referenced um in uh cannery row by Steinbeck and he goes down to to the tide pools to sort of gather gather sea creatures for his lab and I've always been enamored of this idea of just being able to drive up and then walk out into the water and then be in the all of a sudden ankle deep or knee deep in, in a completely different world so that's my favorite place so a perfect day would be uh going down to break and bell picking up sandwiches and then going to the tide pools and sitting there and eating food on a sunday morning with the new york times on a picnic blanket perfect yeah that sounds good okay um what is there is there something on your travel i you know you've done a lot of traveling you've actually lived a lot of places but is there like somewhere on your bucket list you haven't yet been oh my gosh um you know, I don't, I should have an answer for this too. I would have to say like Antarctica, like the North Pole or the South Pole is these places where I'm, yeah. I'm too, too, I would be cold and scared and sad or something. I don't know how, I'm like not, I'm not optimized for, you know, being a, in a place that has no sun for, you know, six months <laughs> out of the year or something. But that seems like, you know, it, it, the world, the world when I was growing up, there was no internet because I'm, I'm old. There's no internet. So you had to buy tickets by calling somebody. And then there was no way to just get on Google Maps and then drop into Google Streets and see the place where you're going to be staying. You had to like unfold a map that had been folded and unfolded a few many times if you were thinking, if you love travel as I do. And so I, I feel in a lot of ways that that the world ends up feeling like it's it's uh, smaller than it should feel. And I like the idea of going places where one feels far, far away. My my wife did research in, in college and in graduate school in Tibet, you know, many years ago when when Tibet was, I think, a wilder place than it is now. That's always held my attention. So highlands, sort of wild highlands. So that's what I'll say. Antarctica and Tibet. That's amazing. That's amazing. I feel like as an academic, you could make the the Antarctica thing happen, you know, more so than other people. Cause like, don't like only scientists get to go. You're a researcher. Yeah, you I'm going to be a scientist. Are there any scientists <laughs> listening? Scripts, scripts, oceanography, common. <laughs> right. Um, okay. 
What um, is something that's happened in your life that you think has shaped you, um, you know, you into who you are today more, more so than anything else? Hmm. That's a great question. I'd say two things. The first is uh, the way we, we started this conversation talking about being homeschooled. I'd say like having a very different lens on the world. And some of that is probably dispositional and, and a bit of my, my character, but a lot of that was nurture. Some of the nature, but a lot of it was nurture. So I'd say that's one. And the second is uh, being partnered with my partner, who is a really amazing and uh, ambitious and intelligent and warm and loving person. And I think that has opened up a whole lot of, of, uh, ways of seeing and thinking about the world, thinking that things are possible. Um, and so just to circle all the way back in this conversation, one of the things that, you know, yes, if I send my kids to, if I, if I homeschool my kids, and one of the things I feel like I missed out on was this sense of what all is possible in the world and, and thinking, you know, what sort of universities I, go, I could go to, what sort of majors are available to me, what sort of career paths are available to me. It was a little bit, uh, I think, more limited than it could otherwise have been. And it was my partner who, uh, who we've been together for a long time, who said like, no, actually you can do anything you want. You can go anywhere you want. You can be anybody you want to be. And the people in my life who have said that to me have made all the difference. I remember the first person who said that to me um, was, uh, was a family friend when I was like a, maybe a teenager who said, oh no, you can, you can do anything you want. And I was like, what, I can? And that it may seem like um, that's how people walk around the world thinking, but it's not. I think I feel like we have to be told that. So if you're listening and you know somebody who you believe and you should go tell them, um, but I would have to say being told that I could think whatever I wanted to think by my parents and I could be whoever I wanted to be by my partner who then backed me up with it. And we've reciprocated that and sort of had, had both of us have had successful careers for that reason. I think that's my answer. That is so awesome and heartwarming and really good um, advice that I am gonna pass along. <laughs> Uh, okay, what do you think, uh, what is the song, artist, or album that you have listened to the most in your life? Like, is there a song that you listen to on repeat, an album that you love the most, or an artist that you love the most? You know, so the, I'll say two things real quickly. I love Leonard Cohen. Um, I love his sort of view on the world. I His book of mercy, which is a book of poetry, I've sort of always loved this. It's a sort of, uh, um, sort of, I don't know, Davidic writings, you know, from a sort of a, a, a Jewish philosophical perspective. And I've always loved his, his way of thinking. I love Rilke's poetry for the same reason. And I like his music. Um, I, but I don't, but I'm also, the second thing I would say is I'm not a, a repeat, like I refuse to watch movies twice. And I feel, and I'm something dispositionally, uh, uh, I think I, I just want to keep doing new things. And, and maybe this touches back to like, why did I write a book on, you know, human rights and human trafficking and then write a book about drones and balloons. And for the same, you know, for the same reason that I don't watch movies twice. And then I have bands that I like or music that I like. I grew up listening to REM and U2. I'm a Gen Xer. And so, you know, that's just sort of where I came from. And, but, but then going back and, and, and sort of reminiscing about the old days, you know, and I'm just old enough to start doing that, thinking about the old days, <laughs> big kids, and I think about the old days, uh, or rewatching things. I, I don't, I don't put much truck with nostalgia. I want to like keep going and moving forward and growing and evolving. And I know we all do, but I think that it really actually ends up affecting my music taste. I'm going to mm -hmm. listen to like what's new on Spotify, and you know, <laughs> as opposed to pulling out favorite albums. It also, I mean, I don't have a record player anymore, and I don't own CDs anymore, so that also makes it strange, right? Because we're always mm -hmm. just like getting my music is coming to me through through algorithms which wasn't your question 
what it is. No, no, it's a, it's a great answer and uh, makes sense. I mean, I think there are, you know, different kinds of people in the world. Some of them turn to things for comfort. You know, they've seen their favorite movie a million times, but uh, I think I'm with you. Like there aren't many things. I mean, music, I think I listen to a little repetitively, but I've never read a book twice and I've definitely not seen many movies twice. Um, Princess Bride, Princess Bride. I've seen Princess yeah, yeah. Bride more times than I've seen any movie. Does that count? I <laughs> there feel like you that go. Probably doesn't That's count. a good one. That's a classic. Yeah, for sure. Okay. And final one is, I mean, you're sitting in a room full of books. There are two or three large stacks of books on your desk, it looks like. So what are you reading? Or what are you um, doing with I, all of those books? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, those are two very different questions. So the first thing is that I could not possibly read all the books that I buy. I'm a compulsive book buyer. And I feel, and this is the first time I've ever admitted it to anybody. It's like declaring bankruptcy, you know, uh, in public <laughs> or something. I, I don't think I can read all of this, even if I just stopped buying books right now and then only started to read. And I'm not going to stop buying books now. So first of all, I'm just here to say that I'm Austin and I have an addiction to buying books. And then the second thing is that what's the stacks that are around me right now are books about my new project, which is about what happens to human rights um, if we have, you know, new if new technologies go the way they look like they might be going. So we get super intelligence, maybe, maybe we get social robots that look and talk a little bit like us. Maybe it's Siri's brain, but it looks like a, it looks like a indistinguishable from a person. Uh, human augmentation and enhancement. What if some people can live longer or be smarter? Um, and there's we have maybe we have some some new drugs or some new gene hacks that allow us to do those sorts of things. What does that do to human rights? I'm a human rights scholar and I'm interested in social movements for human rights. So I think that if we start to change sort of who humans are or what humans can do, or we have things that look like humans but we say aren't, what does all that mean? So I've got stacks of books about robots and super intelligence and about how we care for one another and questions about what is it that makes human rights human rights did we get them from from god or did we get them because we all agreed and in either case can we help give them to other entities and that's a big old tough question and that's what i'm trying to think my way through right now that's super fascinating i mean i know that you're working on this and you know you're largely talking about how it will affect people in the future but like in general do you think technology has been good or bad for human rights or neutral? Oh my lord! Okay, here's my controversial. Here's my controversial opinion. Um, yeah, so I think it's like it's it's both, right? And I feel like this is one of the every generation I feel has this opportunity to ask ourselves, like, wait a minute, what are we doing? And is this the right thing? And if we're doing life right, we will have a moment where we stop and ask that question. And I feel like almost all the time, here's my uncontroversial opinion is it's both, right? You asked me from an uncontroversial opinion before. <laughs> and so I wrote the good drone and I said, you know what, this is technology that can be used for good. And then people would come up to me or, or in talks, you know, went and, you know, you do book tours and stuff and say, no, it's, this is actually going to hurt lots and lots of people. And I said, well, let's wait and see. And so my controversial opinion there was, let's wait to regulate drones, for example, until we see if they're really bad. And as it turns out, the fears that people had, you know, I can, we read, we did studies on this and published reports, and I'm not going to bore you with that. But like, it turns out that the fears people had were real fears, but they didn't actually have, there's no real data to support them. So people really felt afraid. But then you ask, like, okay, how many times were drones really used to all the horrible things we can imagine? Turns out didn't happen as much. So our, our ability to imagine what could go wrong is different than what actually does go wrong. And sometimes it means that things go wrong that we didn't anticipate. And sometimes it means things that we anticipate don't go wrong. But it means we need to be pragmatic about technology because, again, I just, you know, like I started this answer with, it, it depends. It could be good. It could be bad. It could be both. 
And I think that once we figure out what technology is actually doing, we start to regulate it. So I think it's like I'm a low regulation early, high regulation later. So uh, that's my my answer. I think we need to like see which way technology goes and then work to, to have big conversations about what we want the world to look like and then take action together. And one of the biggest forms of the you know, biggest ways we could take action together is is through through governments, through re elected representative governments. It doesn't feel that way sometimes, you know, but that's the way we've all agreed uh, right now that we're going to make big decisions on purpose together is through governments. And so you have, you have regulation that comes in and says, OK, 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 that's enough of that, which we're about to do, I think, with Meta slash Facebook and Maybe we're about to do it with Tesla. And I say we, because I think we, the people are the people who have elected, you know, have elected officials to represent us and, and regulators are appointed by them. And so I think another thing I'd like to say, I've, well, I've got a mic, is that we're part of that process and to sort of think of ourselves as separate from these regulatory systems or these governmental systems, it doesn't help. And so if we don't like systems, we should work to change them. Um, and so in that way, I, I feel like having an eye toward, well, what is technology doing? How could it be doing it better? And how could we be part of that solution is, is, is a challenge and charge for, for people who live in any particular country. For sure. Super fascinating. And you, people can read all about it in your, in your next book. Extra, extra. <laughs> um, you know, I have a few more questions here. I don't think we're going to get to them all because we are sort of running out of time. But um, I guess my closing question for you would be... Um, You've done so much and you are so open, you know, in this conversation, what did we say? You're going to be um, like a musician. You're going to be, you know, like we've just thought of all these future jobs for you, other things you're going to delve into. But what do you think your future holds or what do you want it to hold? Well, for starters, this was lightning round and we're running out of time for questions because I wasn't lightning in my answer. Oh, no, no, not at all. It's just long answers. Short, so I think, short you know, pod. So first of all, I will never be a musician. I can't play to save my life. I'll, but one thing I'm really excited about right now is an artist collective that I'm part of. I, I founded it with some some friends and colleagues at USD. It's called Art Builds. And we we got started building art that we installed at Burning Man. And then we have shown it at other sort of like festivals in the desert, sort of, you know, places where you can build large scale art that's, sort of, that's uh, you know, easy to engage and climb on and get inside that sort of thing. And we're really happy to have been commissioned by the city of San Diego um, for a thing called Park Social, which was which was launched a couple of years ago at the sort of near the beginning of COVID. It's like, okay, once we're once once the pandemic's over, people get back into parks. We want things that are sort of like cool and uh, and engaging and draw people in and in, uh, into connection and community in parks. Of course, the connection and community part gets complicated during during the pandemic. But as the pandemic wanes, we're getting ready to actually install. Um, our first piece, uh, and we're going to do it in in La Jolla down near the down near the water. So, I'm really excited about that. It's going to be in the village, and so I I like the idea of moving forward to be investing more in taking ideas. In this case, it's ideas in art, but also ideas in in, in sort of writing, uh, etc out from the academy and, and into the world. I really think that universities are a public good. I think I work at a private university, but I think that professors are public servants. I think our goal is to contribute new ideas into the spaces that we, that we live in and to contribute to sort of conversations at the, at the local domestic sort of national level, internationally, wherever we're, we're sort of doing our work about how we can make the world a better place. And so I think I, I see myself for the next few years doing that through writing and hopefully also through, through art. That sounds so cool. What did you say the name was? Art Builds. So we're like art, art builds. Builds dot 
O-R-G. I hope I get the URL right. And so you're yeah, a, it's a bunch of us. At, it's a bunch of us at USD and uh, and, and some of our friends. Mm-hmm. And um, we sort of sit around and think about cool art and then write proposals and then build it. And uh, and we're that's what we're, we're in the middle of doing that now, writing a, a proposal and, and design and having conversations on the back end about like, how does all this stuff hold together? We've got engineers and set designers and all sorts of folks with backgrounds in in computer modeling and math, and it takes a you know it takes a village, and so a whole bunch of us are sort of sitting around and talking about what are the ideas that are going to go into this? What's the design look like? What's the build look like? And uh, and it's a, it's a lot of fun, and it's a completely different outlet for those of us who are academics, which is about half the team, to be applying our knowledge in an area that's not another academic scholarly research paper, which are important and contribute to certain you know sort of scholarly and academic discourses, but they're often uh, limited in their impact and don't benefit the community as directly as some of us would like. So then you all go to Burning Man together. And then we go to Burning Man. Yeah, we, really we, we, uh, the last, last Burning Man took a large piece of art and we didn't want to bring it home. So we burned it. And so, and then we published a paper about it and we burned this piece of Burning Man. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, Austin, thank you so much for this conversation. You know, you're, you're very inspiring. You're such an ideas person and you've given me a lot to think about. So I'm, I'm walking away from this interview with a lot. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's Name Drop episode of the San Diego News Fix. We'll be back next week.